Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. We're now incredibly lucky to be joined uh, by the investor panel, by some of the leading and pioneering investors within the blockchain space, uh, especially within Europe. Joining Carlos and Sierra from the Seedcamp investment team, we have Mariano Blinky, managing partner at Santander Innoventures, the global VC arm of Santander Group. Santander have made several investments in the blockchain space, including Elliptic, Digital Asset Holdings, as well as Ripple, with whom Mariano works closely as a board observer uh, and who are creating standards for distributed ledger technology um, to automate settlements and transactions. We're also joined by Jan Ranchier, partner at Anthemis Group, a leading fintech investment and advisory firm. Anthemis have made several pioneering and early investments in the space uh, in the blockchain category, and Jan sits on the board of two of those companies, Monax, which is creating the distributed application software stack, and BigchainDB, which is allowing developers and enterprise to deploy scalable blockchain databases. Uh, lastly, I'm excited to introduce Richard Muirhead, a general partner at OpenOcean and founder and chairman of London-based seed investor Firestarter, both of which have made some very exciting movements in the category, including OpenOcean's participation in uh, Blockstack's fund and, excitingly, Firestarter's investment at the protocol layer. Uh, in Status, um, an Ethereum-based messenger platform and browser. Uh, so hopefully he'll be able to tell us a bit more about that. So uh, welcome, guys, and I'll leave it to Carlos to take it from here. Excellent. Thanks, Kieran. Let's start off with, first of all, Richard, you guys invested in, uh, in Status, and um, you know, I'll let you explain kind of the rationale there, but perhaps you can walk us through the DD process you invest in traditional equity investments, so maybe as an investor, walk us through how there was a difference between the two and how your team dealt with that in terms of sort of maybe your LPA and what your LPs are expecting. Hi, everybody. Um, so first of all, I mean, it's great to listen to Lex. I thought that was a great intro with loads of um, uh, data. We love we love data. And um, But I'm even more sort of bullish than the last like thought experiment he, he went through there, which is to say um, there's some small percentage of assets currently that are in alternative investments um, and someone told me it was like low signal digits a decade ago, and it's kind of steadily increasing. But if you think about it, one of the reasons for that is because there's huge industries uh, set up that the whole objective function is actually just to not to lose money, is to kind of basically cover your ass and not lose money. Um, and that's why so many investments are made in the kind of boring side of the assets. What we're seeing here with what we like to think of as the, the fourth age of, of open source uh, where you've got these incredibly powerful building blocks of software now being joined together with these incredibly powerful network effects in the digital ecosystems you're building, and then combined with really what is kind of open source data, or uh, which I've sort of playfully um, entitled "truth as a service." <coughs> you know, this is a this is not a small thing. This is an enormous thing, and so there are you've now got the opportunity for people to circumvent the asset managers who are covering their own backsides, if I can say that, um, and invest in these great projects. So it's a big thing. And so when we come to looking at something like um, status, um, we see that incredible wave of opportunity. We see um, a great team who are great technologists who are building great product, um, who are thinking carefully about their roadmap. And um, we do the same kind of due diligence we do on any kind of pre-seed or seed investment covering those two points. Um, and in terms of the LPA, 
Um, in the case of Fastlane, we don't have an LPA like that. So that was not an issue. Uh, but obviously it is for some venture capital investors. Okay. Jan, so you've been writing some amazing content around business models for ICOs. Um, and one of the points that you make is this issue around how do you keep people engaged? Maybe you can walk us through the the nature of that post and, and, and some of the key issues that you see right now. Yeah, so I think one interesting question, I mean, those companies, at least the pure crypto entities, and not that to make a difference between people that are raising with ICO is a different sub-nature than the people who are actually properly crypto companies, in my view. So our, the protocol builders effectively are open source companies that are that don't have a working capital business model, which is, makes it super interesting. Because these companies effectively issue tokens and issue tokens for themselves and are providing open source software and a protocol that they're not running. This is a, they're just writing code. If you look down to it, they're writing a set of codes <coughs> that runs, but they, they're not extracting any ongoing value from from this protocol apart from the token appreciation in the in the purest form this is a lot there is a lot of diversity there but in the purest form you look at a company like ethereum the foundation doesn't extract ongoing value from ethereum the protocol running it just extracts value by the derivation of the increase in value in the token and the fact that it owns token um, so it, it's it's quite an interesting problem because we're, we're used to evaluating companies based on revenue at core. And now we need to evaluate companies. There's a big question mark around whether they're actually companies on no revenue. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the really interesting aspect of it, in my view. So there's value that's, we were having a conversation earlier, there's value that's being created just by the very nature of, of the miners. If, for example, Filecoin, you know, yeah. there's intrinsic value that the Filecoin token will, will generate over a period of time. Yeah. And at some point, somebody's going to want liquidity, especially if you're Richard, you know, you come in, you came in early, you just acquired all this value. Walk us through the process of liquidity for an investor. And is that even, is that even something that we're ready to discuss? Yeah, it's, again, super early stage. The prevalent mindset in the industry is that 24-7 liquidity is a good thing. Um, and it's driven by the fact that those are, there is no, there is very little cost in doing transaction. So whether it's hard to sell <coughs> securities in most cases, here, whether you have 10 securities, you have 20, you have 100,000, it's very easy to create an efficient way of buying and selling. And so the cost of running those buy and sell models, are, it's tremendously much cheaper than the cost of doing an exchange in a traditional world. Because you have much less cost of custody, you don't need to move money, you don't need much less intermediary trusting actors. So right now there is a bunch of liquidity, liquidity space like the exchanges, uh, which are public exchanges. There is a lot of OTC trading uh, transaction layer happening. Um, and I think it's, it seems relatively easy because when things are go up into the right, everything's liquid. <laughs> uh, when things don't go up into the right, nothing's liquid. Sometimes we haven't seen that yet, uh, but that can happen. That has happened before. and and. As an investor in a startup, we, we all know that you know everyone wants to buy it until everyone no, doesn't want to buy it. And it's a very zero to one problem in most cases. So we haven't really seen liquidity crashes yet in the market. We've seen some of them, but not very big ones in terms of by the very nature of selection, some of these protocols are going to fail. 
And then some people are going to sit on token with no liquidity because even if it's listed on an exchange, if no one wants to buy and sell, whatever the price point is, doesn't mean anything, right? Um, so I think that's an interesting question. Which, which brings up a, a question about governance, which I'm going to ask you, Mariana, in a second. But before I do that, I, I wanted to get your thoughts, Sia, on, on so how, how do we start thinking about in, investing in companies where you're trying to balance potential liquidity and then also potential protocol value? How, how, are, how are we looking at that? Excellent question. I think it's, it's difficult. I mean, I believe that, uh, I mean, right now, as we saw it with, uh, the, the work of Lex, I mean, we are a bit in a kind of like ICO bubble and we see like those projects like going out and uh, raising like a lot of money on basically some small team and a white paper on a website. I think that uh, probably we will like see like that whole space like consolidate a bit more and that actually like a lot of those projects that will still like go for like some seed early stage funding and then maybe like the, the early stage investors will like help the company actually like structure also its ICO and bring some of the support that uh, any like good VC is trying to bring at the early stage and then potentially also participate six months, 12 months later to like the token offering. But uh, I mean, I think like the question of like, how long would you hold that token as an investor? How like the liquidity, liquidity can come at uh, the token level, but potentially depending on the structure also at like the uh, company level. I mean, all those questions are actually still like a bit up in the air. I mean, we are like still looking for like some of those answers. We were having conversation with Yan about what that could look like in the future. And, and frankly, we are in the age of speculation on what that could look like. So maybe moving it down to, to today, walk us through your, your relationship with Ripple and how that, how that came about. I think Ripple, I think honestly, most of the investment we've done as a bank or, or participating in the, in the little funky things, uh, Alexa, uh, have to do more with the, uh, as Jan was describing, the creators of protocols. And that is uh, useful to us financial institutions from mostly an efficiency and uh, effectiveness perspective, right? When we think about what Ripple give us or digital asset or being part of the uh, founding members of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, it has to do with how do we adopt some of these protocols to improve and make just settlement more effective and efficient. And I think Ripple is one of the several bets or the several initiatives that we have in that space, specifically uh, low value cross-currency payments. Um, Ripple happens to be also a token owner, um, XRP, and one which has created a ton of, you know, either whether, whether you, you can call it you know, just funny money or, or real paper-based uh, uh, wealth for, for the company um, and has created some interesting uh, headlines two weeks ago when R3 disclosed that they had an option to, to get some of that uh, uh, transferred to them. Um, I don't think that we as financial institutions today are particularly interested in the token side of protocol builders, right? I think we are focused on the protocol themselves, and I think for the most part we'll end up with uh, private chains and private implementations of chains to do a lot of these things. And by private, I mean private to 
sort of a club of financial institutions and, and some selected players like market makers and, and exchanges and, and, and so on, right? And I think that's, that's where the investments of a bank like Santander and many of the others, um, I, I agree with you, 80%, I don't think know what they are talking about, but there's 20%, and I hopefully I'm part of that 20% that we do. Our bet is on just overhauling the global settlement infrastructure across any and all asset classes. That was a long answer, sorry. Yeah. So I, th I think it's an important point because people tend to have a black and white view on private blockchain versus public blockchain. Um, I think this is a, the best way to look about these things is this fractal. Um, there is multiple layer of coordination between human people from two people, a family, a company, a global coordination, right? And all of these layers have, have meaningful aspects to them at every type of coordination. So. A coordination of, of 15 banks or a coordination of 20 banks or a coordination of 150 SMEs. Or lack of. Oh, sorry, <laughs> lack of. Um, but, 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 but improving the coordination of players at all scale is, is a massive, one of the massive improvements of, of this technology. And the other massive improvement of this technology is you don't need to, in a certain set, you don't need to trust people to have this coordination. So if you look at the theory of the firm, uh, is a big driver of our view in terms of how we think about blockchain technologies. If you reduce transaction costs, what's the you know unit look like in terms of building a certain set of coordination level? Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 important to think about the the public blockchain is a, is a very interesting experiment in worldwide open coordination. I think it's fascinating. I think it creates a lot of value. I think coordination at subscale level is also as interesting and fascinating. At least in my view. Uh, do you have a comment, Richard? No, I was just going to say that um, whether you're talking about um, how people are raising capital, whether they're selling you know, a piece of this digital ecosystem or selling a share of future revenue, as they used to, or whether you're um, talking about um, the protocols they're building and experimenting with, or whether you're talking about the way in which they mesh them to deliver a coordination we couldn't have, have before, the beauty of what we are playing with here is the um, the fact that people can experiment and are experimenting. Uh, they're learning like two month old, you know, babies, um, extremely fast. We're, and I think we're extremely early in that process. But you know, we will have uh, corrections in terms of how fundraising can work. Whether it's a good idea to get liquidity early. Um, because suddenly you're being judged on a very short-term basis as to how you're doing, uh, and you may have raised too much money, and then you can't raise any more, or whatever it is, and that exists in the, today's public markets, and, and had some experience with that. And then, um, you know, that's that's one challenge. Um, but I, I think at, at the end of the day, um, the opportunity is much greater than the the risks, and uh, um, we're going to see. Um, fundamental changes in the kind of infrastructure that applications are built on. All right, so let's fast forward into the, you know, four years into the future. <coughs> what are, what do you reckon the, the structure of financings are going to look like and the governance between them, between the equity potentially, if there is a hybrid with uh, an ICO raise? Well, I mean, the equity side, as far as I can work out now, because we're just going to crystal ball gazing, as you said up front, it, I, I see that as, maybe a, a lab that might uh, produce a number of foundations over time that produce different open source projects. 
So you may want to own a piece of that laboratory because you, you trust it to run a series of experiments and produce something interesting each time. That's one way of, of seeing it, I believe, and uh, very interested in other people's opinions. Um, and then in terms of the, the raises people do uh, with their, the tokens, and I was interested by the comment that maybe people, you know, the banks are disinterested in the, in the protocols, not interested in the tokens that are kind of part of those digital ecosystems. I think if it's good, they're, you know, totally intertwined. Um, and on that side, people have to raise enough money to build sort of foundations that, like Blockstack, might even go as far as fund further investments in apps running on their particular, uh, their view of how stacks should be built in the future. Um, and so, uh, frankly, there could be opportunity in both of those different spaces, but I don't, I don't think it'll look much different from how it currently looks in terms of uh, venture investing, with one key difference. We have the opportunity here to build platforms with fantastically productive network effects that are not owned by Facebook or Amazon or Google or, or, and so forth. They're owned by the people who participate in those ecosystems and therefore designing them well, working with the entrepreneurs to design them well and, and more broadly you know, distribute the ownership of those tokens is, is key to their success and that is different from today. Just, I just clarify one thing and then maybe other comment on, on the what the future looks like. So I wouldn't say we're not interested in tokens per se, right? Uh, a very, there's, I think one of the most, I don't care what Jamie says, um, there's one of the most interesting but less talked about projects in the enterprise uh, blockchain space uh, called uh, Utility Settlement Coin. Uh, that unfortunately I can't talk about a lot because there are heavy NDAs over that. But where we as banks said, well, you know, uh, it makes sense for us to own a specific type of token for a specific type of use case, right? And we're building that. So I wouldn't say <coughs> we dismiss the tokens. I think what I'm saying is we will adopt tokens as if and when and as they become useful either to us or to our customers, right? And um, someone a couple of years ago asked me, you know, when will banks like Santander start offering wallets and, and, and crypto services to their clients? And I said, well, when we have a good number of uh, clients that actually ask for that, right? And I think we're slowly getting to that point. And, you know, there are a number of, um, I think, financial institutions worldwide that are either already offering this to their customers or thinking of, of doing it. And I think we'll see more of the adoption for the sort of more um, used or, 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 or more liquid tokens uh, being, being adopted. And I think as, particularly as retailers and others start accepting them, we'll see huge adoption of, of of uh, tokens as a as a form of uh, exchange of, of of value, and I think then banks will definitely get on that. Right, they'll start playing the game. I, b before we get there, there's probably some additional work required in the governance of those tokens. And Jan, we were kind of talking a little bit about how to incent what what's missing. So Lex had this really good slide that showcased like features the token, but also on the well, I forget what color it was, purple or magenta. There was in the the governance that's currently in place. What are the things that you you think are missing right now for that to sort of evolve to the next layer? So I think it, it's um, 
why this space is so complex and interesting is it mixes technology and economic incentive models. And, and so um, the, to the extent you can model an economic incentive models, an economic incentive um, system over a long period of time is, is still a very big problem. And if you, try, if you just look at the economy and the way we can able to predict the way economic model works over a long period of time, we're really bad at that. I mean, genuinely, we're bad at that. I mean, we don't even know what the stock market is going to do tomorrow or even a month. Tomorrow, probably, yes, but a month from now. Really? Well, if you know, <laughs> yeah, if you know then we'll be drinking margarita and not be here, I can tell you. Uh, but, but so all of these things are based on, 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 on thinking about economic models. So if you look at Bitcoin, um, the approach, whether purposefully or not, doesn't include a governance mechanism in the way we think about governance mechanism at, in most cases, which is a delegation of power in a voting system, in democracy at least. You can have also dictatorship and many governance models. It doesn't include that per se uh, in a defined way. So... What we're seeing is some interesting questions around how do you, can you build intrinsic governance model into these protocols? How do you decide the future of the protocols? So, and, and for example, if you think, oh, okay, over no, the first five years, it's great to have fixed supply of token. The first 10 years is great to have fixed supply of token. The first, the next 20 years is gonna be painful to have fixed supply of token because the appreciation in value, let's say the dollars remain what it is, is best, most relevant currency. The appreciation in value mix, mean, means there is no more transaction because everyone sits waiting for an increase in value. So you might want to say, okay, we're going to slowly increase the token supply to, to change that because we want certain behaviors. We want it to be available for payment, we want to be a payment network. And, and so deciding that right now is very difficult um, in terms of coordinate, coordinated actors. Everyone has different economic incentives around that. And so we're seeing some very interesting discussions right now around how do you model economic incentives in protocols? How do you, 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 you kind of do simulation on how they will behave in the future under extreme cases? And, and so, but again, I, like every week learning a lot on this in terms of, you know, issuing tokens, defining governance and thinking uh, 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 through that. I would actually disagree with the premise that you need to have the governance figured out before you get adoption. I don't think any form of storage or exchange of value in history started with the governance. We had all sorts of things uh, tried and tested over history, and, and many or most of those either didn't have a governance model or had governance, governance models that evolved or crashed and burn over time. So particularly with, with the rapid explosion we have now with different uh, protocols and tokens, I think it will be more of a trial and error, and some things will work and, and some things uh, won't and will change things, and some of the changes will be very painful, as we've seen already both in Ethereum and Bitcoin, and others will be probably more seamless, right? But I don't, I don't think, I don't. if we wait to figure out what the governance is before we say, well, okay, this is the token and now we're all going to use it, that will never happen. I, 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 I'm French, so changing governance model involves cutting it most of the time. So I, I'm trying to think like, like that. I guess it's interesting in who I am. <laughs> cutting heads sometimes is actually a good thing, right? yours. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.